Welcome to the Hudson Mohawk Magazine, broadcasting from the Sanctuary for Independent Media in Troy, New York, on the unceded homelands of the Mohican people who are known today as the Stockbridge Muncie community. I'm Andrea Cunliffe. And I'm Keelan McPherson. Today on the Hudson Mohawk Magazine, Eric Walber of Postonkill who wants New York State to pay for PFO te- PFOA testing, then Bernice Menace of North County Earth Action on Ecofeminism Speaks with Mark Dunley. Nature, and then we're talking nature, writing, and mushroom farming in the Collar City with Avery Stempel. After that, we hear about the celebration of the Canandaiga Treaty. Finally, we talk with Mari Lee, creator of Salon Seance, about the end of time. But first, here are the headlines. The Times Union reports that the end of the pandemic-driven housing boom may be in sight. Economists economists from the Federal Reserve predicted Thursday pointing to cooling housing prices but lower affordability in upstate New York as mortgage rates rise. Since the beginning of the pandemic, home prices have increased more than 30% in upstate New York compared to the national jump of 40%. The Times Union reports that the unopposed Republican candidate for, for the City of Commissioner of Public Works in Mechanicsville appears to have lost to a write-in candidate who is a DPW employee, Anthony Gotti, who is the only candidate on the ballot and controversial figure in the city for criminal allegations has faced in the past, was defeated by Democrat Patrick Skimbody II, who works for the city's Department of Public Works. A federal judge in Albany issued a temporary injunction Thursday blocking New York's Office of Cannabis Management from issuing retail licenses due to a lawsuit filed by a Michigan company that had its application to operate marijuana stores rejected because it lacked a significant New York State presence. The Rotterdam Town Board on Wednesday approved an ordinance allowing residents in a single-family homes with at least 9,000 square feet of lot space to own up to six egg-laying hens after receiving a permit. And that's it for the headlines. And for those of you just tuning in, you're listening to the Hudson Mohawk Magazine, listener-supported radio that builds community in Troy and the surrounding capital region through broad grassroots participation. Our content is produced by volunteers. To learn how you can contribute, go to mediasanctuary.org. Email us at hmm at mediasanctuary.org or call 518-272-2390. And first up this evening, the town of Postonkill has been awarded a three point. $32 million in state funding to provide safe water to residents after the local water was contaminated with PFOAs. Post and Kill Town Board member Eric Wallabar gives an update with Mark Dunley for the Hudson Mohawk Magazine. We're joined by Eric Wallabar, uh, who's a town board member. Uh, in the town of Post and Kill. Uh, Post and Kill has been the news uh, over quite a few months uh, after uh, the forever chemical toxic contaminant PFOA, PFOA was uh, discovered at the local school, uh, an increase in number of wells, at least 13 above the uh, state limit and quite a few more 
uh, still some level have been detected with BIFOA. And uh, so, so Eric, you've been calling upon the, the state health department to start to provide, you know, free blood tests and um, for DEC to uh, drill some additional wells to do a better job trying to find where the contaminants are. You know, what are you trying to get the state and the county to do here? Well, Mark, I think the the, the very simple uh, answer is we, we here in Post and Kill just want to be treated like everyone else. Um, we've had this issue in Rensselaer County, as you know. It's happened in Hoosick Falls in Petersburg. And the state has set out a, you know, has set a precedent and set out a procedure that they follow. And yet they come to Post and Kill and they don't do any of the things they've done in the past. And it's very frustrating. Uh, because we have uh, my constituents that talk to me that are concerned about it. You know, in, um, in one of their press releases a few weeks ago, uh, they mentioned that they need to do a better job of communicating, which they certainly do. And, you know, we take them at their word and we understand people can, can improve. You know, but last night's meeting was, was just kind of a check of the box. You know, they had a meeting. Um, it wasn't very informative. There was no new information there. And at the end of the day, very simply, DEC and DOH and a county have to find the source of the contamination. Then they've got to understand where the plume is, who, what's the area that is affected, and then they've got to start the remediation. And everything else is is kind of just noise, and, and that's what we're hearing, in my opinion, is, is a lot of noise last night and no new information. And, you know, for our listeners, I'm just going to mention two quick things. Uh, one is that uh, this week, Congress actually allocated uh, over $500 million to uh, clean up um, basically this group of forever chemicals uh, because it's becoming a, a real nationwide problem. Um, and, and also EPA uh, recently put out a report that said, you know, we've actually been underestimating significantly the problems related to um, BFOA and what level uh, we can uh, detect it at. Now, the one of the prior meetings you actually helped convene at the town hall where DEC Sean Mahar's chief of staff did show up. He he was arguing that oh maybe the janitors at the Algonquin School, which is where uh, the BFOA was first detected, maybe they put too much floor wax, uh, you know, when they were you know buffing the floors. Um, what is the state doing at this point in terms of trying to detect where the contamination is coming from? Well, in my opinion, they're simply wasting time, wasting resources, and wasting money. The reason we know there's PFOAs in Post and Kill is because of a state regulation where all schools had to be tested, those that are on a well. So that's how we found out about this. Uh, I've said very clearly to uh, DEC and, and to anyone who will listen that the middle schools is not the source of the contamination um, and any comment about, you know, floor wax is, is simply silly and a, and a diversion. You know, this, the state has come in and dug a bunch of wells around the middle school and it's a waste of time and it's a waste of energy and it's a waste of money. Uh, they are simply one property of many that we know now that have levels in, in post and kill above the level, above the state limit. And instead of drilling wells at the middle school and not drilling wells around potential sources is just a, a waste of time and it's a diversion. And in my opinion, I feel like the state is trying to just you know, run the clock out here, uh, do a few things that they think they need to do um, in an effort to kind of appease uh, some of the folks here in Post and Kill. 
um, but they're not getting to the source. And last night I was in a group uh, at a table where one of the residents said, well, um, you know, they asked what were, you know, back in uh, September, they asked us to give them potential sources. And Judith Ankin and myself wrote a letter and said, uh, we want you to look at these specific locations. And they said they would. And here we are in December. And the, they asked them, well, what about these locations? Oh, uh, yeah, we're still looking to get the tests done there. So they've done nothing. Uh, instead, they're drilling a bunch of wells at the middle school so they can show, you know, we can all see that the, the, the wells are being dug. It's a waste of time. They're not getting to the source and they have no, there's no immediacy, no urgency here. And it, that's the frustrating part to me and to a lot of the residents here in Poston Hill. Now, I, I should probably disclose I am actually married to, to Judith Bank, and I'm also a former uh, town board member in Post and Kill. Yep. And, and one of the potential sites, you know, that we knew had contamination uh, was the old town landfill. And then there's an old racetrack next to the landfill, which actually may have caused a lot of that contamination. But I was also kind of surprised to hear that one of the sites that actually uh, somebody from Hoosick Falls you know, did a Google search in 10 minutes and found us a potential site. Things called DFS. Apparently, it's also being investigated by the, the state for being put on the Superfund list. Um, so apparently, they've known for a while that this is, uh, you know, a, a source of toxic chemicals. Um, any idea why the state is so reluctant to look at, you know, these known sources of contaminant in the town? Well, Mark, that's an excellent point. And, and the reality is, um, DSI was one of the, the locations that um, Judith Ank and I had asked the state to look at. Um, we have since found out that there was a spill at DSI 10 years ago. We've since found out that they already have monitoring wells on the site at DSI. And yet we're 11 months into this thing and they still haven't done a test on those monitoring wells. I don't, and then now we're talking about Superfund sites. I was on the phone with Sean Mahar a couple of weeks ago, and I said, how come you guys, I don't know, conveniently forgot to tell us that? Don't you think that's an important thing for us to know? And his answer was, well, it's on the website. And I said, so it's our job to track this information down. And he kind of backpedaled, but I have no idea. Uh, the wells are there. We can go test them today. Why aren't we testing them? Uh, that's a great question. That's a question that uh, uh, he did not answer to me. And last night when the residents asked, have you tested at DSI? Have you tested at St. Gobain? Their answer was, oh, we're looking into it and we, we think we'll be getting that information soon. Well, I wouldn't hold your breath. Now, one of the issues that you and others have raised is that uh, unlike Hoosick Falls, uh, state and the county have not been willing to pay for the course of individuals who want their wells tested. Uh, and you know, the, I guess the town has helped identify, you know, one testing source, which charges $350, which may be a little bit below market rate, but, but still for a lot of, you know, Poston Kill is not a rich community, um, you know, $350 is still a barrier for a lot of uh, local residents. It's absolutely a barrier. And, and like you said, in Hoosick Falls and Petersburg, the state came in and gave free tests to everybody uh, that wanted them. The state came in and gave free water to everybody that wanted it. The state came in and gave free blood tests to everyone that wanted them. And we've gotten none of those things. So we're being, in my opinion, we're being treated as second-class citizens. Um, and we're being told, oh, it's not that bad. Oh, it's just over uh, the limit. And, it, you know, it's, it's an outrage 
that we can't get any of the things that our neighbors have gotten in the past. And yesterday I called on the state to give us free blood tests and they have not responded to that. We have a group of concerned citizens in Post and Kill, um, concerned citizens for clean water, drinking water, and they have sent DEC and DOH a list of questions. They still haven't heard back from them. So, you know, this is really, to me, I really feel like this is a run the clock, you know, run the game clock out kind of campaign um, and do a, a, whatever appeasing you have to do. This should be being paid for by the state because they've set the precedent. They've done it in the past. And the, this, the county could have stepped up. I asked the town to step up and pay for that because you're absolutely right. $350 is a barrier for some residents. And I know uh, neighbors because I live very close to the middle school. I've had my well tested, but there are neighbors that are not choosing to or, or cannot uh, because of the cost. Well, we'll be continuing to follow this story. Uh, we've been talking with uh, Eric Wallaber and town board member of Post and Kill. Um, you can also go to our website, mediacentury.org, for prior stories about the Post and Kill situation. And this is Mark Dunley for the Hudson Mohawk Radio Network. State and county officials, however, are still not investigating the source of the water contamination. I can't hear, can't hear you, Andrea. And next up, Bernice Menace of North Country East Earth Action talks about ecofeminism. Bernice has been living on 70 acres of beautiful woodland wilderness for 42 years and involved in social action for about 55 years. She reflects now on how all the different causes and movements are connected from civil rights to feminism, gay rights, democracy, justice, and here now the climate, climate crisis and climate justice. We're joined by Bernice Minnis, who is a member of North Country Earth Action, but a longtime activist with many different uh, causes. Uh, Bernice volunteered to come on and talk about some of her work on, on climate, but um, she also mentioned she is a longtime ecofeminist. So, Bernice, what's, a, what's an ecofeminist? Way back, way back when I was young, but it was in the 1870s, there was a term that tried to see how women were treated and how Earth was treated. And it was the same way of viewing both of them as if they were commodities, as if they could be exploited, as if they had no value, dignity, or life in themselves. And that was then extended to the earth, to women, to poor people, to poor countries. It was a way of viewing the other as not having worth or dignity in itself. And actually that is a principle that you see operating all the time. It's like the sense that one per one people, people in power are defining the other as not having dignity and worth and any sentient being. So it enables you to do anything to people you don't see or animals or trees if you don't see their worth, then you can abuse and exploit with no compunction, with no sense that you are doing anything wrong because it's from such a limited and arrogant point of view. So I see it as pervasive in terms of capitalism, in terms of patriarchy, in terms of imperialism. All those movements are based on seeing the other as not having inherent worth and dignity in life. So how do you 
you know, put that ecofeminism philosophy uh, into action with some of the work you've been doing with uh, North Country Earth Action? Well, I live in the wilderness and I see, actually, I, and I write a lot of nature poetry and I see the life in all sentient beings. And I think it's not just with the environment stuff, but it's really seeing how we relate and how we it's really seeing criminal actions against the other as if they were acceptable because it's that point of view. Our North Country Action does other things in terms of what laws are uh, being passed. We have a rack card. We give films. Um, we give films in the library where we talk about a lot of the issues. We try to get people to be um, active in many ways, but also I try to get people to connect with the wilderness and see the life principle. And it connects for me with biodiversity because biodiversity is life. And this is in terms of the environment, but it's also, if you have white supremacy, if you have a monoculture of trees, what you're doing is removing the very principle of life. So it's really a matter of seeing interconnections and interdependence that your life is part of this larger circle. And I think I think all of capitalism, but also all of the commodity productions and what is something worth, what is the cost of something, it all depends on a certain point of view that does not see interdependence and interconnection. And when I hear a lot of first peoples or indigenous people, it's so clear to me that they saw themselves as part of the forest, that they didn't make the separation that is so endemic to our society and our culture, which sees humans and white humans and males particularly as having a superiority that allows them to do terrible things so it's really my point of view is consciousness and seeing people how independent we are interdependent we are and how our way of seeing is based on such a notion of monoculture which is a death culture as if diversity isn't the principle of life. So that's how I relate to the environment and also all of our um, actions that we try to do for the environment. It's recognizing that our life is dependent on the life of all the things around us. And so it has to do with how we're exploiting and harming the earth, not just hurricanes, tornadoes, and floods, but the extinction of species, the, uh, the pesticides and fertilizers, the things that destroy our very life. And I feel it. I, I, we have 70 acres of woodland and I feel so connected to it that I can't see how people can treat things, other, other, other beings as commodities to be exploited. And I think that's the essence of capitalism too. Now you mentioned you live in the Adirondack wilderness and, and, and many years ago I was teaching an environmental course at RPI and I divided the students into two teens and they would argue a point during class. And the one point, the entire class rebelled against me was that Earth First had called to depopulate the Adirondacks and return it to a real wilderness. How did you feel about that particular call by Earth First? Well, we, uh, I didn't know that call by Earth First. I, I feel like I work with Adirondack groups like Protect the Adirondacks because it recognizes what I just said about biodiversity. It works against, you know, getting these uh, destructive trails, doing things that harm the environment. So I don't think it's depopulating. We have a very small population. It's making those people there wanting to preserve. So protect the Adirondacks, the um, Adirondack Council, they all work for earth action in some way. I think though the notion that um, 
that people are the only focus point, I think that is the problem. So what you have to see is what do we do to connect us with our whole environment? Because it's so clear that we are connected. That's the consciousness that has to shift. I mean, if you look at what, uh, what people say about the cost of this or what's progress, or what's advancement, what's all of those terms are made from the point of view of how something can be used and exploited. And it's part of our whole history from the time of when we came over and treated the Native American, the Native peoples as worthless, empty, not having knowledge, not having dignity. And I think it's a return to what they knew that we forgot. And now they become our teachers. Because when I hear uh, people speak with that deeper knowledge, I think that's what we have lost with our well, it's not just white culture, it's capitalism. It's seeing commodity products, objects, and not sentient, dignified life. I will just say that I have taught in Great Meadows Prison for 12 and a half years, and then I taught in a progressive school in Vermont. And those were my most conscious students, because in some way, when you teach writing and literature, people... Uh, talk about their own lives and get really in touch with what's true. And those populations were extraordinary populations to teach because they had major consciousness. Older women returned to college and men in Great Meadows Prison. Those are my two populations that I taught literature and writing to. And that's where I learned uh, so much stuff from. Come January 1st, you and I are going to share something. And that is uh, Elise Stefanik is going to be our congressperson we previously in my community, how Delgado, if you had one minute to talk to Elise Stefanik about the climate and the environment and women, what, what what's your one minute uh, spiel to uh, your Congresswoman? Well, I've talked to her for hours and worked against her for all the time she's here, but it would basically say, understand that what, what you see, what, what you are doing is harmful to our earth, to our land, to our people that you see your, your lens, it's the dark money, it's the lobbying forces, it's, it's the Trump and the climate and environmental deniers, the deniers of both climate and also the deniers of the election. It's a quality of denial that doesn't see the life principle. And I find, I find a criminal. I feel like they are criminals because they destroy what's most precious and they harm. And she doesn't see it because she's so now part of that denying of the election and such a Trump person that I don't think there's any way of breaking through. We have done so many actions in front of her office. We have done so many actions trying to raise consciousness. But the area here, much to my dismay, votes for her. They voted uh, 60 to 40 percent, 60 percent for the Republicans. It's almost like the dark money, which is so much part of the lobbying, uh, has its sway. And for some people vote against what I see is their life, their own life. And it's the life of the earth, it's the life of democracy, it's the life. And people here who live on the land, you think that they would know better, but in some way, they're tricksters. They manage to convince people that what they are doing is supporting the community. I feel what she's doing is criminal. We've been talking with uh, Bernice Menace, a member of North Country Earth Action. Uh, Bernice, you know the website, North Country Earth Action? Yeah, northcountryearthaction.org. And it's a, it's a very nice website. It has a lot of uh, laws that are there. It talks a lot about, uh, we have a little rack card that says action that we should do. It 
Okay. Um, this has been Mark Dunley um, for the Hudson Mohawk Magazine. For more about justice and climate crisis, go to northcountryearthaction.org. And for those of you just turning in, I'm Andrea Cunliffe. And I'm Keelan McPherson. You're listening to the Hudson Mohawk Magazine on the Hudson Mohawk Radio Network on WOOC, LP 105.3 FM Troy, WOOG LP 92.7 FM Troy, WOOS LP 98.9 FM Schenectady, and WOOA LP 106.9 FM Albany. Streaming online at mediasanctuary.org. And, and this program comes from the Sanctuary for Independent Media in Troy, New York. And if you like what you hear, you can support this program by telling a friend. Find today's stories and more at mediasanctuary.org. Avery Stemple has been coming out to the local poetry readings and open mics since the late 90s. Since then, he has been featured at many regional literary events. Last December, Avery graced the stage at the Linda, WMAC's performing arts studio in Albany for the Year in Review show. There he reads, as some called it, his signature mushroom poem. When the pandemic hit and his job as manager of MPAC at RPI came to an end. Avery shifted his focus to a dream. Avery Stemple has been coming out to local poetry readings and open mics since the late 90s. He's been featured at many regional literary events since. Last December, Avery graced the stage at the Linda, WAMC's performing arts studio in Albany, for the Year in Review show. There he read, as some have called it, his signature mushroom poem. This one is uh, Dao de Mogu. If you can watch, if you can listen, if you are open to learn, the mushroom can teach. Sit, meditate, prepare, spread, myceliate, fruit furiously when conditions are right, know when to let go. Have patience, create balance, be adaptable the way of the mushroom. I asked Avery where the inspiration for that poem came from. I grew up on a sawmill and always going to the woods with my dad and my mom. And, you know, my mom, before my brother was born, I was, you know, an only child until I was five. And my mom would pack, pack us lunches and my dad would cut trees and we would just wander through the Catskill Mountains. And, you know, I would love the trees and obviously love spending time with my mom but I do you know I just remember finding like there's just tons of mushrooms you know so I was always fascinated with with mushrooms so you know mushrooms have always been percolating in in my uh subconscious in my early 20s late teens I dabbled with a variety of psychedelics uh, and psilocybin was always one of my my favorites I like the downloads that 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 I would get from that medicine and you know I I wrote a variety of short pieces then based on mushrooms and envisioned a whole like kind of photography book uh with involving mushrooms that was sort of like a a story that 
had the mushrooms as you know conscious beings establishing outposts and kind of you know getting mowed over by lawnmowers and you know so is it i i've definitely approached the fungal kingdom from a variety of directions in my creative work and that dao de mogu uh piece was crafted out of creating this mushroom farm and really getting even deeper into the soil with with mushrooms Avery goes on to explain how nature was his safe space growing up and how those experiences shaped his writing. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I, I definitely draw energy and peace from being in nature. Uh, it's, you know, I, I think having some of my formative years, basically just being in the forest and my as I grew into my teens, like that was my safe space. Like I would leave my house when I was feeling troubled and just wander through the trees of my, you know, um, my family's property, walk up to the, to the sawmill, you know, kind of really hands-on touching the, the wood and, and being able to get my frustrations by breaking, you know, out by breaking, you know, br dead branches and, 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 and enjoying the, the vistas and things of the, the mountains or behind my grandparents' house. So, you know, I, you could just about see the light coming from Albany from the top of the mountain and, and almost see the fireworks. Like you can kind of like see the light from the fireworks. So it was a, it was a really beautiful spot growing up. And, you know, I was basically given a lot of freedom uh, to wander as long as I came back, you know, at a reasonable time. And, you know, this is before I really became a writer, you know, I would just breathe, sit and be. And then I turned that, you know, breathing, sitting and being into uh, pieces that reflected my inner being and you know ways that I wanted to share with others that experience of peace that I had watching a cloud pass by or listening to the breeze rustle the, the leaves or the burble of a creek and you know it was a way for me to put onto paper and into a more concrete reality what I was experiencing. When the pandemic hit and his job as manager of MPAC came to an end, Avery shifted his focus to a dream that he shared with his girlfriend, Amy, and together they opened a mushroom farm in Lansingburg. And, you know, with the pandemic furloughing me for uh, having managed the Performing Arts Center at RPI, you know, I decided to, to do this complete pivot because I uh, um, my girlfriend, Amy, she had been growing mushrooms for about 10 years or so. And one of the things that got us together was our mutual appreciation of fungi. And our phones were, you know, both filled with pictures of mushrooms, uh, you know, in situ in the, in the woods. And, you know, we were always um, saying offhandedly, oh, wouldn't it be nice to, to start a mushroom farm someday? I asked Avery why he chose the city of Troy for the farm. 
Yeah, I mean, I I I love Troy. I, I having worked at RPI for twelve years, uh, you know, I got my master's degree at Sage uh, Colleges, like two master's degrees that I'm definitely using right now. And I, when my wife and I, you know, decided to go our separate ways, Troy was one of the spaces that you know, cities that I really looked at to to make a home. And you know, one, I I, I did I appreciated where I was at RPI, but two, I, I love the community there. I mean, there are so many people doing really creative things and, and making connections. And now that I am further embedded into like the, the business end of creating those communities, I can see how amazing it is that different people want to work together. And, you know, I'm sure that this happens in other cities and other places as well, but Troy is, is, is really known for people creating partnerships and, you know, supporting each other. Uh, Oliver at Primo Botanica, you know, gets our mushrooms and turns them into chocolates. And we, we work together on a, we made a, a cacao uh, vision quest, non-psychedelic chocolate drink. Uh, you, you know, a lot of the restaurants in Troy are getting our mushrooms. And when we go to those restaurants now as just patrons, because we, you know, there were places that we were buying from already and, 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 you know, enjoying now it's, you know, they're like, oh my God, it's mushroom people, you know, and, and it's, it's just, it's, it's such a great warm feeling. And I hope that us being up there in Lansingburg is going to be another like cornerstone for others to try to create more creative businesses and places for people to gather. There are a few trickles coming from downtown that are trying to establish themselves in, in other spots of Troy, but it seems so hard and the downtown is supported and showcased so vibrantly and so frequently by everybody in as like that's what Troy is when there is so much more to Troy the fact that there is in the city environs so many parks and places to engage with wilderness really speaks to me and with community building in mind Collar City Mushrooms is now home to a monthly literary open mic yeah, I mean that you know it's we we are a yes and place. If someone comes to us with an idea, you know, we we want to see how we can make it happen because we we are an incubator. And when Nancy and Dan who had been running the second Sunday poetry uh open mic out of the art center had to look for a new location because the art center lost some of their funding and couldn't be open on Sundays regularly anymore. They reached out to us first as a, you know, knowing that I was a fan of poetry and had a location where we, we could potentially host um, a, a reading. And, you know, I was like, absolutely, let's, let's do it. Let's make it happen. You can learn more about Avery Stemple and all the great things that are happening at Collar City Mushrooms at their website, collarcitymushrooms.com. For Hudson Mohawk Magazine, I'm Tom Francis.
And you can find more segments on poetry on our website at mediasanctuary.org. Stories. The signing of the Kianondaga Treaty is still celebrated every year on November 11th. To understand the importance of this treaty between the United States of America and the Six Nations of the Iroquois Confederacy, correspondent Sina Bazilla Hickey reached out to Gunandaga State Historical Site. The Canandaigua Treaty was signed on November 11th, 1794. It is a treaty between the United States of America and the Six Nations of the Iroquois Confederacy, the Seneca, Cayuga, Onondaga, Oneida, Mohawk, and Tuscarora. Every year, the signing of this treaty is celebrated. And to tell us more, I'm now joined by Ansley Jemison, cultural liaison at the Natural Heritage Trust, Seneca Arts and Cultural Center at the Ganondagan State Historic Site. Welcome to Hudson Mohawk Magazine. Thank you very much. Pleasure to meet you and uh, pleasure to be here. Thank you. So what is important to know about the Canandaigua Treaty? Yeah, I mean, I think the most important thing to understand and recognize, I guess, about any treaties uh, for that matter, is that when treaties are signed, these are signed nation to nation. And something that's significant about that is the fact that, you know, when these treaties were signed, a lot of them were signed nation to nation. So this represents and is actually kind of a, an, an exertion of uh, indigenous sovereignty, native people being sovereign people, native people being indigenous people to this land and the original people of this land. And, you know, when we were signing these treaties, these were agreements that were made you know, nation to nation. It wasn't something that was going to be signed where, you know, when you sign a treaty, you don't sign a treaty with the state of New York. You know, the federal government wasn't signing treaties with, you know, their their citizens at the time. Um, you know, we were our own sovereign nation. We were a, a formidable people at the time. Uh, you know, George Washington valued, you know, the, the Haudenosaunee people, the Seneca people, the the Iroquois people. And, um, you know, so we had a nation to nation relationship you know, early on um, in 1794. And, you know, this is something that we still exert as our own people, you know, as indigenous people, we still believe that that's who we are. We travel on our own passports. We have our own systems of governance. We have our own language. We have our own culture. And this is something that, you know, has at different times been damaged and had, you know, a lot of different challenges and things like that. However, these things are still maintained within our communities, within our people. And we are still here. I mean, that's another thing for people to recognize and understand. Now, has the federal government held up on their end of the bargain? Have they felt, you know, fulfilled all of the, you know, agreements in and around the treaty? Not all the time, you know. I mean, land loss has been a big part of that. Land loss has been a huge piece to any of the treaties. And I think that, you know, it's, it's important for your listeners and people to understand that, you know, they were... They were looking for opportunities, you know, when they came here, they were looking for these opportunities to try to expand westward. And, you know, by signing this treaty, this kind of, you know, at least kind of talked about an agreement as to like how we can do this in a peaceable way. How can we do this as, you know, brothers or as people as opposed to one doing it to the other, you know, and, you know, as we kind of moved along through things and things challenged or changed along the way, um, um, it's 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 really been a, a very difficult sort of uh, experience. So, um, you know, the the nation to nation relationship is certainly something that kind of key in and on focus. And um, and you know, for our end, you know, as far as who we are as in, as far as indigenous people and how we have that claim, um, it's important for us to uphold and make sure that we are still who we are. 
You know, we have our own culture, we have our own governance, um, we have our own language. And so those are the things and the key elements that make up who we are as people. And so it's important for us to maintain and keep that. The Sanctuary for Independent Media, where this radio is based in Troy, New York, where the Hudson and Mohawk Rivers meet, is on the land of the Mohicans, now referred to as the Stockbridge-Munsee community and the Scaticoke, and on the very eastern part of the Haudenosaunee, the Iroquois territory, specifically the Gununkahaga, the Mohawk. But at the time of this treaty in 1974, the Mohicans were already pushed off the land. And I imagine that other Native groups you were talking about, land loss, were also pushed off these territories. So what does the treaty cover? What territories? Yeah, so essentially, I mean, it, it is going to incorporate all of the territories of the Haudenosaunee people, the Iroquois people, and the Mohawk people would have, you know, maintained and had, you know, rights and kind of um, sort of, uh, I guess, here's, here's something to understand as well, I guess, and there were territories, there were areas that we kind of managed and maintained as people and things like that, but in terms of like an ownership over the land, that was something that was really sort of a foreign concept and something that was more of a European construct. And so, you know, when these things were kind of being talked about and when these things were sort of coming about and happening, oftentimes our people didn't really have an understanding as to like, well, how do I give away something that I'm really privileged to be here? You know, the creator has put this here for all of our enjoyment. And that was more the relationship that we had to the land and to the, you know, to all the elements that were in and around the area as well. So it was important for us to maintain that relationship. And as we saw, you know, our European counterparts coming in, you know, they always wanted to kind of have that relationship of we're your, we're your master, your leader, your father, you know, and whatever. And it was an idea that we had to kind of push back on and say that, no, if we're going to enter into these agreements, it's nation to nation, brother to brother, you know, person to person. And that was really a lot of where these relationships were formed. Now, you know, what has happened since then was there's a lot of different agreements as to like, you know, what was going to be Haudenosaunee territory, what was going to be Iroquoian territory. And a lot of that was going to be pushed, you know, there were territories and, you know, communities, reservations, things like that, lands that were still kind of, you know, held by the original people. But it was this idea that they try to push indigenous people west, continue to push them towards, you know, the, the western part of New York State so that European counterparts could kind of continue to, you know, encroach into the state. And so the Buffalo Creek Treaty was something that kind of came up after all of this, but really, you know, the Canandaigua Treaty was this guarantee that they would no longer, that the, that the federal government would, you know, allow the, the indigenous people, the indigenous inhabitants to have this land and that it would be a space where it would no longer be encroached upon, it would no longer be, you know, um, challenged or taken away. And of course, none of that stuff really was upheld. So. One of the things that, you know, is important to understand about the treaty is that this is something that is still recognized today. You know, the federal government every day as per part of the, the agreement was that they were going to supply and furnish, furnish us with certain goods and sort of services that we could kind of maintain and keep. And one of those items is a bolt of cloth. And that cloth, we call it annuity cloth and meaning it's an annual thing that happens every year. And so to us, Every year, our clerk office, you know, down at the Seneca Nation actually issues this foot by foot or the yard by yard, um, you know, surplus piece of cloth that we receive. And that comes from the federal government. It's actually delivered to our clerk's office and it's set to be distributed to any of community members that want to use this stuff. So to us, that is the recognition. That is the understanding that 
they know that they have that right responsibility. They know that they have that responsibility to our people. And the fact that they're enacting that and actually, you know, and still bringing that out, that's the, that's the significant or the, the indication to us that they realize that they're still in that agreement. Now, have they upheld all of the pieces to it? Have they, you know, not encroached on indigenous lands? Have they not taken away more things? That hasn't happened, you know? I was curious. I saw that it was $4,500 of cloth. Is that the original amount? Has this accounted for inflation? <laughs> Absolutely not. It's still the same bolt of cloth and it's still, you know, not a very usable piece of cloth. If I was to try to make anything out of it, I'd probably be able to make a sock at best, maybe. Oh, wow. That gives some really important perspective on that. So <laughs> as you mentioned, a lot of this uh, treaty was has not been upheld from the U.S. government. So what would you like to see from the U.S. government to move towards a more just, to give more justice to indigenous communities? I mean, one thing would be great is to have a little bit more involvement by the federal government and actually have a, you know, a conversation around what treaties mean. You know, in a lot of ways, they believe that the treaties are the supreme law of the land and that, you know, when these things were agreed upon and enacted and things like that, it was from the jump that these things were right away being encroached, you know, and these things were being broken. And, you know, it'd be great for an elected official to maybe kind of stand up and finally say that, hey, you know, maybe we should kind of go back and revisit and have a conversation with the indigenous people, the original people, and maybe get an understanding as to like who they are and, and, and where they're coming from. And how we celebrate every year is we have a commemoration at the Treaty Rock in Canandaigua, New York. It's going to happen this upcoming Friday at 2 p.m. If people can join or if people can come up and see it, um, there are going to be you know a number of Indigenous peoples, Indigenous constituents, um, elected officials, or not so much elected officials, but just really kind of um, you know kind of people of authorities, I guess you would say, polishing of the of the covenant chain. This in terms of maintaining this relationship with our, our neighbors, with our brothers, and you know just making sure that we're upholding our end as long as you're doing your part and holding up yours. So that's what a lot of this is about. It's just kind of repolishing this, making sure that we're still commemorating this and make sure that we're still talking about this and educating people about treaties and what they mean and what they represent and the responsibilities that were, you know, laced into these things as well. Ansley Jemison, I really appreciate you taking the time to talk to us about the Canandaigua Treaty. And you can learn more about this treaty by visiting the Ganyan Degan website. Find that link along with this segment on our website at mediasanctuary.org. Violinist Mari Lee, creator of the innovative ensemble Ceylon Seance, talks with Hudson Mohawk Magazine's Andrea Cunliffe, also my co-host for tonight, about the meaning of this piece, Quartet for the End of Time. Friends of Chamber Music of Tro New York will co-present the concert on November 19th at the Sanctuary for Independent Media. Salon Salon's The End of Time will be performed at the Sanctuary for Independent Media in November on the 19th. And this is an amazing and an immense experience. It centers the themes of trauma and healing in the combination of live classical music with visual and theatrical storytelling. Mari Lee is the co-founder and the artistic director of Salon Salon's. Hi, Andrea. Thank you for having me. Oh, it's wonderful to talk with you. 
you're primarily a violinist. From there, it's sort of grown. Tell me a little bit about how you became a violinist. Do you come from a musical family? Actually, I'm the only musician in my family, but I think almost everyone in my family runs their own business. And so I always had this entrepreneurial spirit. I guess I'm not really surprised I'm doing something of my own and trying to pay my own path in this very traditional field. But I discovered music when I was around seven or eight. And I say discovered music because I was exposed to classical music from an early age because my mother is a classical music lover. And she used to play CDs and recordings at home quite often. Just a little bit about my background. I'm a third generation Korean, born and raised in Japan. And I feel like this is a community that emerged out of the consequences of Second World War, from the Japanese occupation to the Korean War. It's a community that lost its voice and identity to fear and violence of World War II. And I grew up with this sense of like loss and lack of identity and like lack of belonging and, and sense of self. I didn't have a sense of belonging that attached me to a specific place, land or a community of people with an identity. And music was something that filled that void for me. And it was an important way of connecting with people that was free of discrimination. And it was really through music and specifically through abstract, timeless music like classical music, where I found the depth and complexity of emotion that I was experiencing already as a young child. Now that I think back to it, it's quite amazing that an eight-year-old Asian girl could connect to this incredible music that was written like, you know, in the 17th century or so in Europe, a, a white man with a wig. And somehow I connected so deeply with that music. And so it wasn't about who wrote the music or what it represented, but just the way it was speaking to me in that moment was very real. And it was more alive and meaningful and real than anything else I'd experienced. And so that is what led me to discover music and its beauty and how it can be a universal language that transcends all these things that get in the way of people. <laughs> it was always my feeling that classical music has universal speech, the power of, of classical music is, and it's called classical. And I think that's kind of unfair because as you say, it can be abstract. How does this music reach it particularly? So as you just made the connection, like this music is very personal to me because of the historical connection I have with it. This piece was written inside the prisoner war camp in 1941 and premiered there, which is incredible. You know, when you hear the title of this piece, The End of Time, Quartet for the End of Time, it is kind of confusing. And this is what I experience when I rehearse with other musicians. And, you know, this is outside of Salon Saint as I've performed this piece many, many times. And it's hard to locate where to place yourself emotionally, because what exactly does the end of time mean? And I think the easiest thing to associate it with is like this picture of Nazi Germany and concentration camp, black and white images to starving people and all of that, and like the end of the world, you know? 
but actually it's almost the opposite of that the the message of the music is like how do we come out of that sense of despair and darkness in the world what is it that becomes a motivation uh, to have some kind of purpose and a reason to continue living to me it's very relevant because i think all of us in the last two years i feel like you know you can experience this darkness and void at different points in life and it's sometimes really hard to find that light you know for me personally like the last two years you know during pandemic Yes, it was very, very difficult, especially as an artist, just to lose all of your opportunities and all your future plans in just a few days. And that sense of uncertainty of when is this going to end? Are we ever going to come out of it? Was the hardest thing to cope with. But at the same time, it was a time for me to really appreciate my life and discovering gratitude for the things I have and reassessing what it is that I want in life, what it is that I value in life. And it was actually through people around me that gave me support during the, that hard time that gave me that light. So maybe it really shouldn't be called the end of time. It should be called the new beginning or, <laughs> uh, you know, the dawn of time. Because I think it's misleading in aspect. It's not like a very depressing piece. It's a very emotional piece. There is definitely some darkness and confusion and chaos in the music itself, as well as this notion of ending time, which really means like eternity, what lies beyond time. But I think in order to access and appreciate that light that we have in life, we also need to understand and experience darkness. I don't know about you, but if you really think about the moments of joy and light and true happiness in life versus all the other stuff. <laughs> I mean, there are only so many moments in your life that you really feel that, right? That light and like, oh, I've been saved. And so I think this music really represents that, that journey. Your production, The End of Time, it's channeling the spirits of four prisoners who start a new beginning, but you use it to create theater and music and spiritualness. How did all of that come about? I would say that it's, it is part of the life of an artist, performing artist. When I play music from the past, that's what I do, right? I, play, I specialize in classical music and a lot of the music I play are written by people who are dead. And when I do that, I am in communication with the dead through their works. And I bring it to life through my craft. And I approach that as an act of channeling because in my training, I've been taught that a good musician or a good artist is somebody who serves the intention of its author it's or the composer. And it's not about yourself. It's not about the performer. Like when we're on stage, it shouldn't be that spotlight is just on us. No, it's actually about delivering the message of the music, what it's trying to tell us. What is its message? What was this composer trying to tell us? And how do we, as living artists, interpret that? And that journey involves trying to get in the minds of these people, geniuses, not only through music, but also through their writing sometimes, and a lot of the times, had important things to say, not just about their own lives, but the lives of others around them, the time they lived in, about the world, how they experienced the world. And I think their works, 
you know, because it is abstract, of course, you can interpret it in so many different ways, and that's the beauty of it. But it encompasses all of these things. Yes, I feel like when I'm truly in touch with the intention of the composer and the core message, the core emotional message of the music, I become whatever it is that that person was writing. You use a medium that sort of facilitates the channeling of, of your spirits. Yeah, I think as a performer, an interpreter, I am the medium between modern audiences and whoever wrote it. This production that you've devised, you've worked with director and set design and lighting people. You, you've worked with a, a number of people that have contributed to this production. Is this still evolving? This experience that I have when I'm interpreting music is so personal. And I think actors do the same thing. They become the character. The characters kind of enter their bodies and they become that character. And that process is very similar to what we do as, as classical musicians. And directors have the role of trying to get the performers to that state. So I feel like this idea of seance and channeling actually is something that ties everything together. But how we then visualize that, how that manifests in space, and how people then in the audience experience that. So it is in constant evolution. I want to embrace that experimentation involving the audiences, trying to make something out of that together in that moment. And everybody will take different things from it. But my hope is that people will somehow have a moment of connection with themselves and with the messages that we're delivering through the spirits and with one another in the space. This has been Andrea Kamler for the Hatsum Mohawk magazine, speaking with Marie Lee of Salon Seance. Salon Seance brings communing with kindred spirits through music with the end of time to the sanctuary on November 19th, 2022. And, and that's our show. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Hudson Mohawk Magazine. I'm Andrea Cunliffe. And I'm Gillian McPherson. Our engineer, and uh, the engineer tonight was me. I engineered the show. Thank you to all of our volunteers who made today's episodes possible. Headlines for Mark Dunley. Second producers, Mark Dunley as well, Tom Francis, Cena Bazilla Hickey, Andrea Cunliffe, and also your two co-hosts, Andrea Cunliffe and Kellen McPherson. And we want to hear from you. Find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at mediasanctuary.org or send us an email to hmm at mediasanctuary. Tune in weekdays at 7 a.m., 9 a.m., and 6 p.m. to hear local news or stream Sanctuary Radio at mediasanctuary.org. Full episodes and individual stories are available on demand on our website and on your favorite podcast platform. Well, we appreciate you listening. Until next time, thanks for tuning in.